BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. A couple of months ago, I lost a beloved aunt to cancer. It was very fast, unexpectedly so. And a few months before that, I lost another friend who had spent five years battling cancer and she was only 39 when she passed. In both of these cases, I was surprised at how virulent the disease was, at how little we seemed to be able to do, and yet how many treatment options there were, how expensive they were, and ultimately, how ineffective. And of course, I'm not alone in terms of experiencing a loss of someone to cancer, and I'm also not alone at bemoaning the high costs of treatment. But when is it time for us to actually do something about it? We trust that the entire medical profession is moving forward as best they can. And we trust that the fight to cure cancer is one that is on the minds of some very, very, very smart people. But is even the whole idea of finding a cure for cancer now misguided? I mean, when I was growing up, it was one of the things that people said they wanted to do when they grew up. It was like, I want to be an astronaut, or I want to cure cancer, or I want to be a race car driver. It wasn't like, I want to find another treatment for anxiety disorders. Or, I'd like to extend the life of a cancer patient by an extra two months. And yet it seems that, that in all of these years, we just haven't gotten that far in terms of extending the lives of people who have incurable cancers. There's also a woman who is actually calling for a complete rethink of how we approach the study and treatment of cancer. And she should know, she's a longtime oncologist herself. Dr. Azwar Raza is the Chan Soon Xiong Professor of Medicine and Director of the MDS Center at Columbia University. She is also the author of a provocative and well-researched book called The First Cell and the Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer to the Last. She's suggesting that maybe instead of focusing all of our resources on preventing the end, what if we focused on the beginning? What if instead of pouring money and time and pain into the last days of a person's life, we instead look at the times in which those first cells begin to show markers of cancer. Azra Raza, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Andre. So I want to start out with uh, kind of just addressing this idea that cancer is something to be beaten. Uh, you know, we don't often talk about other diseases like diabetes or heart disease as, as something to beat. Um, but cancer, I don't know, everybody talks about it as if it's some kind of war with a foreign invader. Why is that the case? And, and do you think it's misguided? That's a great question to start with because uh, cancer is a word that uh, has been like a stigma for centuries and only now we are uh, even able to talk about it openly. I always have uh, felt that cancer is being treated as if it is one disease. That's like treating Africa as one country. Even in the same patient, it's not the same disease at two different sites or at two different time points. So when we talk about beating this disease, first of all, it's uh, it's many, many different diseases lumped under one. 
but uh, the idea of trying to squash it is uh, arises from the fact that it is considered to be a universally fatal illness and that is why the whole terminology the semantics that has evolved around this disease is quite unique as you pointed out yeah i remember growing up you know people would talk about i want to be an astronaut or you know i want to be a firefighter or i want to cure cancer as if that's you know there's just one person who's going to go out and and then done <laughs> Uh, and as you point out in your book, that that just, first of all, hasn't proven true, despite the fact that so many people who are very smart and motivated and educated have tried. So tell us a little bit about sort of why you think that this whole notion of, you know, curing cancer, and you sort of even talk about sometimes you you go to conferences and hear oncologists tell their personal story, and then you know, they sort of have this this view that this is something that a few people are going to be able to do. Like, wh why do you think that has become the case? And, and why is it so wrong? It hasn't uh, always been um, appreciated, really, how exceedingly complex this disease is. And so over time, while our views evolved, the language hasn't kept up with it. Um, so the idea of curing cancer really started with cutting it out. That was the first thing that was applied to it. If there is a tumor growing, let's cut it out and the patient will be cured rather than would be healed. And then uh, with time, when surgery alone was not sufficient and uh, added therapies like radiation therapy and then chemotherapy were uh, used, again, the intent was to somehow eliminate the presence of this malignant uh, malignancy. And this is one of the strategies that I have uh, been questioning now, that constantly we are talking about curing and about trying to kill every last cell. And all the treatments that we try to develop for cancer target that last cancer cell so far. Whereas it has succeeded in a large number of cases, 68% of cancers are being cured using the strategies that we have developed, including surgery, radiation therapy, and chemotherapy. Still, the 32% to 40% patients who present with advanced disease, their outcome is really no different for most common cancers. Their outcome is not different than it was in the 1930s or 1960s and 70s. I think that's the most shocking thing that I sort of read right off the bat from your book. And yet it exactly mirrors my personal experience over the last few years where I've had you know, two close, one family member, one friend, both diagnosed at relatively young ages. One was 34, the other one was 71, and which, you know, seemed still young to me, and both metastatic and, you know, both died uh, very quickly from, from cancer. And yet it seemed as though we should have been able to do better. I was surprised at how quickly it all went, given this sort of excitement that we hear about in the media of all these new therapies, of even these great success stories of, you know, targeting specific genes. So, you know, my thinking was, we'll just get the tumor sequenced and then everything will be okay because surely there will be some, you know, experimental drug down the pipeline. And from reading your book, it, it just sounds like that's such a, you know, just, just, just it's a myth in a, in a lot of ways that maybe we could have, uh, and we did prolong their lives by a few months, but certainly not changed the outcome. Yes, I'm so sorry to hear about uh, the two people close to you who died. But this is exactly the question I'm asking, Indre. Why are we giving only these choices to patients with any kind of common adv uh, advanced cancers? You either die of cancer or you die of the treatment we give you. It's exactly what happened in, in the second case. And, you know, it it uh, it seemed as if, well, that must have just been bad luck. You know, the numbers were not in our favor because, of course, you hear about probabilities and, and statistics, not like, okay, this is black and white. Once we excise the tumor, it's all going to be okay. No, it's like, well, a certain percentage of patients do well on, on this particular drug. And I was shocked to find that that number is not 
95% of patients do well and, you know, sorry if you're in the 5%. It's more like 20% of patients do well. And yet, you know, we still make this choice, which, you know, essentially can lead to you know, poisoning the person. Um, so t- tell me a little bit about sort of the state of these kinds of drugs and, and you know, why you as an oncologist uh, are, are really making a stand at, that, that we're, we're, we're not even looking in the right place in terms of helping people. That would be a little bit of a strong statement to say we're not uh, uh, making headways. We are, but it's not enough is my problem. So first of all, as I said, 68% cancers are being cured with the current uh, strategies we are using. But my question again in that case is why are we using these paleolithic technologies to treat people. I mean, it is horrible to be given chemotherapy or bone marrow transplants or CAR-T with immune therapy, cell therapies. These are hugely toxic things. That's one problem. So what people we are curing, what are we curing them with and why not, why hasn't the extraordinarily generous amounts of money that the public has raised for cancer research and the government has given hundreds of billions of dollars, why have these all this investment not brought us better solutions? That's number one. The second is, think of the statistics, Indre, that today, if we bring experimental trials to the bedside of a patient, 95% fail. The 5% that succeed should have failed because they're only working in a small proportion of 20 to 30% patients and prolong their lives by a few months. So, for example, one of my colleagues said, oh, I had a patient who lived for eight months. She was supposed to be dead eight months ago, but with this on this trial, she lived for eight months. And that eight months meant a lot to her. Of course it does. Every moment is important for life. But the questions that I'm asking are a little different, that what about the 80% patients on that same trial who suffered simply unspeakable toxicities physically, and under half of them underwent financial ruin to participate in the trial, and yet had zero benefit. In fact, they were harmed by being on this trial. So, How do we balance this 20% patients improve for a few months and die anyway, 80% are not responding at all and suffering all the toxicities, both physical and financial? Why are we even bringing drugs to the bedside that have a 95% failure rate? Yeah, you know, I think think one of the questions that that really sort of your your book left me with is this, this notion that for some reason, cancer seems to have really hit a nerve in terms of our sense of uh, mortality and the importance of life. And, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of times you have the choice between doing nothing and dying of cancer, or doing something that has such a small chance of working, but there's still a chance. And we as human beings, when it's our loved one, or it's ourselves, we tend to look optimistically. We tend to think we are going to be that five percent, uh, and and so if if the if the choice is between definitely dying and five percent chance of living for perhaps even a long time, you know who wouldn't pick the five percent? Yes, I mean why why say five percent? Uh, in my book, I have the case of Andrew who was diagnosed at twenty two years of age. His mother said, "Asra, if he has one in a million chance, I want to take it. It's a twenty two year old son. Of course, that's absolutely true. But that is for the current patients. Why? What are we imagining for the future? Is my question." Should we just continue like this and keep having this repeated conversation that it's great to give a 5% chance for three months to a 22-year-old? Or should we be thinking a bit differently? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what that might look like. Uh, you know, your your book is called The First Cell. Uh, and so, you know, the, the focus is on thinking about what happens to that first cell. And yet we all have cancer cells running around in our bodies probably all the time, right? 
Yes. So tell us about what do you see as the future in terms of going and, and you know, preventing that first cell from, from taking over and eventually killing us? First of all, I want to be very clear and say that um, I'm not sure that this strategy will work 100% of the time. What I know is that we need to take our blinders off, first of all, and see the problem clearly, at least. You know what Einstein said? Uh, he said, if I'm given one hour to solve a problem, I will spend 55 minutes defining the problem, five minutes thinking about the solution. My big problem right now in the field is that we are not even willing to see the problem clearly. And the problem is that the strategy we have been trying for the last 60, 70 years of going after the last cell with everything we have has been milk to the maximum. If we look back on cancer treatment, how it has evolved, you what you see is that, yes, there is a dramatic 26% drop in mortality from all types of cancers in the last uh, couple of decades, three decades. How did this 26% drop in mortality occur? You know that it's not because of any great new therapies we have somehow discovered. It's mainly due to two reasons. One, thanks to the anti-smoking campaign, and two, the screening measures that were put in with things like mammography, colonoscopy, testing for the PSA, testing for pap smears. So the only thing that has really been responsible for a drop in death rate is a better lifestyle, stop smoking, and screening. But even those screening measures have been milked to their maximum. So that on October 24th, there was a special issue of Time magazine dedicated to future of health and medicine. And in that issue, the director of our National Institute of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, a really respected scientist and someone I greatly admire personally because he led the government's uh, project to sequence the human genome. Dr. Collins made the statement in the opening paragraph that the dramatic achievements are a 70% drop in mortality from cardiovascular disease and 1% drop in mortality from cancer every year. Now, you compare these two statistics, Andre. 70% drop in mortality from cardiovascular disease. How did that happen? Because cardiologists are smarter than us. They have anticipated that by the time a myocardial infarction or heart attack destroys the heart muscle, there's nothing left to do except try and transplant a heart. So try and prevent it from happening. And early detection, prevention of heart attack by fixing the coronaries, by taking care of high cholesterol, by better lifestyles, that's what's caused the drop in mortality in cardiovascular disease. I'm saying that we need to follow the same strategy. You asked me about the first cell. What is, uh, we have uh, cancer cells in our bodies all the time. Sure, we do. But for cancer, cells are there, but they haven't become a bona fide tumor yet. They haven't assembled into a malignancy. They come and they are uh, removed by the immune system. Hundreds or thousands of mutations occur on a daily basis in different cells. But these, the body's own uh, systems of uh, surveillance and policemanship are very, very efficient. And these are eliminated uh, dramatically. But with age, as the system becomes decrepit, the chances of one of these rogue cells taking off and running amok is very high. And that's why cancer is related to increasing age. All I'm saying is, look, the strategy of trying to kill every last cell, we have tried only uh, the same old uh, slash poison burn is what's working still. For the majority of common cancers. Now, there are rare cancers for which uh, targeted therapies have been developed, but these are very uh, 
very few and far between. When I talk about cancer, I'm talking about the most common types of cancers, which are killing the majority of the people. So the point is, if those strategies haven't worked, where else should we look? Maybe we should try something else. Will the first cell strategy always work? I don't know. But at least we know that so far, the only thing that has caused a drop in mortality has been a screening measure. So why not develop better screening measures? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, um, you know, there's certainly more awareness of screening measures, and that has its own controversy. So, for example, people who, um, you know, like women with breasts who get mammograms, there's a high potential rate of false positives that can, you know, cause their own harm um, with anxiety and unnecessary procedures that now, in fact, they're pushing back the time in which a, a, a woman who does not have a family history of breast cancer should start getting mammograms to sort of reduce the false positive rate. So I wanted to get you to t- talk a little bit about sort of this push and pull between, you know, screening measures where, you know, incorrectly, I guess, used, they can lead to potentially more harm than good? Or do you think that ultimately in in the larger scheme of things, you know, uh, a few people who have unnecessary surgeries would out would would not make, you know, would not be as important as all the people whose lives would be saved from having metastatic cancer as the first diagnosis? You know, that's an area that I really don't want to get into simply because Yes, we can talk for hours about overdiagnosis and overtreatment. My point is these screening measures were are 50 years old already. Why do we keep using the same? What's happened to all the new technology, the imaging and the scanning technologies and all of this uh, genomics, proteomics and metabolomics? and transcriptomics, all these things we have developed, why aren't we using these to try and detect cancer early? Why do we keep talking about those old technologies? I keep saying, yes, this is maximum you will get from using those. Let's move on now. Yeah, I mean, the same could be said uh, in a lot of ways of of, uh, kind of the, the screening for neurodegenerative diseases where you know, you get to a point and, and if you're spending all the money uh, trying to, you know, diagnose and then treat the disease once it's already in your brain, it's too late. Uh, and yet the amount of money we spend understanding the basic biology of aging is a drop in the bucket compared to the money we spend trying to develop drugs to reverse Alzheimer's disease, which, you know, has been an impossible task. Oh, and, you know, we've been trying for decades. Do you see that th- this this um, idea that we should really understand the basic biology of aging, which is also the biggest risk factor for cancer, um, and that's where a lot of the funding should go? Um, or do you see another direction? No, I don't think that we should be studying aging to try and find cancers. What we need to be studying is cancer patients. That's what we need to do, and we haven't been doing that. Um, we have been studying mouse models. Or we have been trying to create uh, extremely artificial conditions to study cancer. Um, I have to say that uh, I don't want to be misquoted about my mouse model thing. Um, These are animal models are great tools for biology, great tools. And in fact, most uh, most of the advances in our understanding uh, of cancer at a very Uh, molecular level have all come from studying animal models. So I don't want to appear dismissive of them at all. My only concern is when these kind of models are used for drug development, where it's assumed that if we create an artificial tumor in an animal system and treat it with a drug and see the tumor disappear, we can immediately extrapolate that to the human subject. We can't. We can never, we, because not just for cancer, for everything where it has been tried, whether, as you said, neurologic disease or it is burns or sepsis, infectious disease, anything. It's not possible. So those models are not going to be very helpful for us. What we need to do, instead of thinking about studying aging, because those kinds of studies will take so long to another 
few hundred years to understand every intricate signaling pathway that is uh, affecting aging that's a very very long shot it should be done but what about immediacy we have present patients we have a, a lot of patients who will be diagnosed in the coming years maybe we need to do something more urgent and the best thing we can do is try to prevent cancer until we develop the insights through studying aging and through studying cancer at a genetic level and at the kind of granularity that is required to understand as i said all the trafficking inside a cancer cell and it's uh, uh its uh, interactions with normal cells until that happens let's try to at least prevent the disease by uh going early in using the only strategy that has worked i mean just think about things like mammography the basic technique of imaging the breast in compression with x-rays is unchanged since the 1970s but there have been improvements in like high resolution less radiation etc which has allowed us to detect smaller and smaller cancers and this is what's caused the decrease in mortality from breast breast cancer it's caused uh, us to have improved disease free and overall survival for women with breast cancer in, in recent years even decreased use of chemotherapy in the most common type of breast cancer which is hormone positive node negative based on multi gene based uh, determination of likelihood of recurrence so continually decreasing surgery both in the breast and the axillary nodes and increasing the power of uh, screening we have made huge gains i am saying that we can make these gains so we are detecting early yes but only 40% of women are diagnosed with stage 1 breast cancer why shouldn't we bring it to 100% so what's the next step how do we bring it to 100% why aren't we investing more money in investigating those areas that's my question BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com/metaverseimpact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the Fileo fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. I want to get to the money question in a minute, but I also, I, you know, you made a subtle but very important point about the animal models that I just want to make sure that I'm understanding correctly, um, because you know, I, I I think that sometimes it's easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and so what you're saying is that mouse models might be a way of understanding disease progress and how the disease works and how it it happens, but not necessarily. treatment because the mouse models are so limited in terms of their um you know how comparable they are to what happens in a human when the same cancer is is established 
Absolutely right. You are so eloquent. You said it better than me. <laughs> no, not at all. It just it was it was a point that I I feel your book uh, made, and it made me sort of sit up in my chair when I read it because I hadn't ever thought about it that way before. I mean, I thought about sort of the limitations of mouse models, but not in terms of, you know, where they uh, have you know their their most benefit and where they fall short and. Uh, and and so I, I want to get a little bit to the money question that one of the other quote statistics in your book that I think made me and a lot of other people sit up in our chairs was this one 42.4% of the 9.5 million cancer cases over 14 years had lost all of their life savings within just over two years. That's shocking. Uh, and it suggests that not only does this cancer diagnosis lead to death, but also in almost half the people, a complete obliteration of their life savings. Unfortunately, and so tragically, it happens to be true. So I guess my question would be, is that one of the reasons, do you think, that that the drug companies focus on this last cell as opposed to screenings, right? Because I don't, you know, screenings, of course, can be lucrative in their own way, but they don't have the same potential for, you know, a billion dollar drug the way a billion dollar drug might. I mean, is that is that part of the problem? Or is it more about the sort of funding at the government level? Or is this just something that we've a situation we've gotten into and we just have to get ourselves out of? These are very complicated issues, but I'm going to break this down for you. You know, Indrate is very easy, and in fact, it's kind of convenient to always blame pharmaceutical companies. They are everyone's favorite target, and blame them for everything. But I want to point out a couple of other things uh, before we uh, rush to judgment of these uh, industries. The first is that Let's say that you walk to your corner drugstore and buy 100 Band-Aids. It will cost you $3.99. But uh, if you walk into a hospital and somebody puts a Band-Aid on you, they can charge you $75 for it. And you have to pay. If your insurance doesn't pay, you have to mortgage your house and pay for it. So how is the pharmaceutical industry to be blamed in this scenario? Let me ask you a second thing. Uh, the FDA demands that in order for any drug to be brought to the bedside from a preclinical testing platform, let's say that I apply for a grant to the National Cancer Institute to study a, a genetic pathway that I think could be involved in my cancer patients. I get the grant, I study the pathway, I identify a target, I think there's a drug for it. So this is all done in my lab. Now, the next step is to try this drug, which is, seems to be working very nicely in my lab in humans. How do I take it to the human, to the bedside? In order to take it to the bedside, there are requirements that it should be tested in two mammals at least. So people try to test it in, I mean, you have to do it. My question is, why should using this drug in mice, give me any confidence that it will be safe for use in humans and that it will have the same effect that it's having in mice to humans. Why is, and then two model systems. And so basically all of this has to be done before the drug uh, can be tested in humans and there is no funding available because it requires millions and millions of dollars. So the only one with the bandwidth to invest in this kind of work end up being big time pharmaceutical companies who will then have to spend anywhere from a billion to 2.7, 2.8 billion dollars and 10 years of work to finally uh, receive FDA approval. And remember, the failure rate after all of this is still 95%. So if we have force these companies to spend $300 million, let's say, in just uh, phase one and two trials, along with the mouse studies, how are they going to recover that money? Because their stated goal is to make money and make profit. So what is wrong with FDA and NCI, our institutions, which are supposed to protect patients? What is wrong with why are they 
putting down these kinds of uh, restrictions which basically make no sense to me at all why are we forcing drug companies to test the drugs in two mammals it gives me zero confidence that's why 95% uh, trials fail a second thing i want to tell you is i've been in this country since 1977 since then the clinical trials are done the same way once the drug is brought to the bedside just give it to i don't know 100 200 patients whatever number your statistician came up with and see who responded and if there is an improvement in survival by uh, 2.5 months 10 seconds more than that you'll get the drug approved and if not which is 95% chance it won't then your drug goes down the drain forever why are we still doing trials like that why aren't our uh, the institutions like the fda demanding more rigor from the sponsors of the trials and say at least even if you do this blindly in phase 1 in phase 2 trials in phase 1 trials you should start saving all the samples and when you become begin to see responses you can only do the trial when you can pre-select patients who are likely to respond so how do we find those you study every patient sample and then compare responders to non responders using the latest technology that's available but this rigor is not demanded at all and so everyone is failing i don't think that it is enough to so blame just the pharmaceutical company the institutions are failing the hospitals are failing the patient the oncologists are failing the patients because they key opinion leaders get together and decide that if somebody presents with stage 4 uh, ovarian cancer then first line of therapy will be this combination of drug second line will be this third line will be this if an individual oncologist now deviates from that exact recommendation then the person is opening themselves up to legal challenges by the patient and their family so everybody is sort of involved in this complex game and ends up Uh, with the patient uh, suffering just as badly as before most of them and 42% of them are losing their entire life savings and another 20-30% probably saving losing half of it at least so who is benefiting from all of this is my question and how it's untenable it's unsupportable it is no way to continue into the future something has to give something has to change what should it be i say that the only suggestion we have for possible success is earlier detection and prevention right now and you know you uh, uh, presumably one of the things i was really impressed with in in your in your talking about your own work is that you collect you have a, this huge collection of samples yourself as a as an individual oncologist is is that one of the reasons why you have collected these samples across your patients is to be able to then uh you know look at these these treatments in that way thank you so much for bringing that up because this is such a precious uh, tissue bank and so close to my heart actually it happened because i'm an immigrant i came to this country as a fresh medical graduate and uh, started working in a cancer center immediately before i even did my residency or fellowship and by i started by studying and treating acute myeloid leukemia one of the deadliest cancers and the sad thing indra is that in 1977 when i started we were treating acute myeloid leukemia with two drugs popularly known as 7 and 3 because it's 7 days of one 3 days of another today in 2019 we are using the same drug 7 and 3 by 1984 i had this inkling this uh, sudden insight that in fact in my lifetime this disease is so excessively complicated and so aggressive that it will not be cured in my lifetime so back in 1984 i placed my faith in early detection of acute leukemia why because many of my patients would give a history that for a year or two years or six months they had been having low blood counts and then suddenly they developed leukemia so that was the pre leukemia also known as myelodysplastic syndromes so in 1984 i decided 
we should be studying pre-leukemia and intercepting before the disease evolves into the end-stage monstrosity that spirals out of control so rapidly in front of our eyes. And in 1984, when I started to study, to, when I decided that this is what I'm going to concentrate on, uh, study and treat patients with pre-leukemia, follow their course as they develop leukemia, I knew I needed uh, their samples to study. And so I started saving samples. Had I gone to school in this country and wasn't an immigrant, then the next thing I would have done would be to make, try and make an animal model of it. Because that's what everyone else was doing. But I depended on instinct rather than custom. And I started to save samples quite um, innocently, thinking this is what I'll study. And I have been studying those samples all these years and have been reporting regularly on the findings and have developed, uh, uh, thankfully, a lot of insights into the biology of the disease and has... Um, my work has led to the development of this whole area of treatment with the drug, uh, which is a thalidomide analog now approved uh, for a specific type of myelodysplastic syndrome that presents with deletion 5Q. I was the first to use thalidomide in, in patients with myelodysplastic syndromes because of all the work I did studying human samples. So yes, from the get-go, the idea was that I have to study human samples. I never thought of studying animals, but I kept saving samples on my patients as many of them progressed and died of myelodysplasia or died of developing leukemia. So I have this longitudinally, sequentially saved samples on thousands of patients. Right now, we have more than 60,000 samples in the tissue repository and not a single cell has come from another physician. These are all people I've taken care of myself. And that's one of the real, I think, uh, wonderful parts of your book is that you also tell a lot of these stories. And you buck tradition instead of using initials like so many uh, physicians do. You got the consent of the patients and you not only give us their names, but have pictures of them, which really puts a human face to their story. Um, I want to remind our listeners that Dr. Raza's book, The First Cell and the Human Costs of Pursuing Cancer to the Last, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Um, I, I want to end with asking you to tell us a little bit about where your optimism comes from. I mean, I can't imagine how hard it must be to watch patients die day after day, and then your husband and all of these uh, people who are close to you, and yet see the world optimistically. So share with us a little bit of that optimism and, uh, you know, help us understand that maybe the future is not quite as bleak as it might seem. Yes, thank you for asking that because in reality, I'm the book that I have written is not about cancer, it's about cancer patients. The book is full of stories, it has patients' voices in it, it has the family's voices in it. In fact, the way I I wrote this book, Indre, was that first I started writing about the patients because I was so deeply devastated by the case of Andrew, who was my uh, daughter's best friend uh, at three years ago at 22 years of age. He got diagnosed with a, um, an inoperable glioblastoma, which is a very malignant brain tumor. And the surgeons couldn't remove the whole tumor. Uh, he has been in and out of my house since he was uh, 15 years old. Now has this malignant. The moment he opened his eyes after the anesthesia wore off, he turned to his mother when he was told what the diagnosis is, and he said, Mom, don't worry. Just call Azra. She's on the cutting edge. She will find the right treatment for me. I felt so ashamed of myself. How is it possible that we are failing our Andrews of this world so spectacularly? Because it was clear from that moment on that his chances of survival are 0.00. .00. There was nothing we could offer him. 
no we did offer him sorry that 16 months it took him to die we gave him chemotherapy radiation therapy more surgery immune therapy more chemo more i mean we kept treating him he suffered miserable toxicities from everything we gave him and tumors kept cropping up until he died two weeks before he died they brought him a dnr form to sign that means do not resuscitate now you're giving a 23 year old boy a form to sign that says do not resuscitate me if i die he sent it away he said take it away i'm not signing but that night his father came to relieve his mother and sister and spend the night with him he called them back and signed the form saying i couldn't sign it in the presence of my mother and sister they wouldn't be able to take it this is what got me to forced me to write this book once i started writing in such depth about the patients i realized that it would be dishonest of me not to talk about my own story and talk about my own husband and what i went through and when i was going to tell my own story then i can't tell you the nobility of the patients the courage of the patients that every single one of them that i asked who stepped up and said no use anything our names whatever you want dr raza not one patient would say no they are so anxious to tell the world that it matters to them if it helps any other person even if it doesn't help them and the unique thing about the book is that i because of the patients nothing unique about me for god's sake i feel like a total failure every day the unique thing about the stories is that 10 even up to 10 15 years later i go back to families and ask now that you know all the truth and it's been so many years since your loved one died if you were to cast a backward glance what would you change about then what decision would you have altered what treatment would you have refused and the families have written in the book what they would have done and that i think is a dramatic testament to the human spirit and i feel deeply deeply humbled by this fact that it's not a book really just written by me it's a book collectively written by me and my patients and their families living patients have told wonderful stories that despite all odds there's so many of them are doing well or with the current treatment so many of them are doing brilliantly and living way beyond what they were expected to so let us end by talking about two things one i want to bring back the tissue repository and say Yes I have been studying samples from the repository reporting them in the highest profile journals for the last 30 years but do I really want another paper in New England Journal of Medicine and or Nature or Science really is that what my whole life has been all about no in order to do something more substantive what we need now is literally to study the whole tissue repository these serial samples using all the technology available trace it back to ask the question why did someone even get preleukemia what was it that made them susceptible to developing preleukemia which then evolved to leukemia was there a genetic component was there something they were exposed to let's look at all of that and once we find those footprints then we can go to the healthy population and start examining them for the signs of any susceptibility to cancer of different types and i think that we can find the biomarkers i want to find them for acute leukemia myelodysplastic syndromes etc others may want to find for pancreatic cancer for ovarian cancer for lung cancer the biomarkers can be put on a kind of a barcode which can be put on a chip which can be tested with one drop of blood to see what is the susceptibility or look for the presence of the appearance of a cell that looks malignant and then do 20 other tests not depend on just one mammography or one psa test but do 20 types of tests from liquid biopsies looking at blood sweat tears and urine and saliva everything possible to see the footprints of the cancer 
and then once we know that it's there and it's in the earliest stage then the same treatments that are causing so much toxicity when they are being given in advanced diseases the same therapies that are failing 95% of the time many of them may actually be curative in early stages so this book is a forward looking book for the future the reason to use the patient stories and to describe their suffering and pain and sorrow and financial ruin in detail is not to revel in pain but rather to liberate us from the past think of the future we keep following the same old same old we'll have the same old results and it's unsupportable financially what i'm asking for is let's set a new goal financially incentivize it and the same uh, industry that is investing in an enterprise that has a 95% chance of failure will rush towards the new thing and again last thing i want to say is i'm not saying that we should put all our resources into finding the first cell because we have patients who have cancer now and we need to try and develop better strategies for them so we should be spending at least half the money on studying the advanced cancers and trying to develop therapies but the other half also in trying to prevent it for future patients and one way to do it would be for me personally would be to have enough resources now to study the tissues that i have saved with so much pain to the patients and so much financial investment from them who support me to maintain the tissue repository to study it in its entirety to talk is cheap let's really do the work find the earliest footprint of preleukemia look at people who are getting preleukemia and try to prevent it in the future Well, I hope that every oncologist, every grant maker, every person who has cancer or might get cancer reads your book um because it is so provocative but also poetic. So, Dr. Azaraza, thank you so much for writing this book and for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It has been an honor. So, that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening, and if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com/inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stephen Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the Fileo fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.